You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. Hear the word of the Lord. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one and avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too once once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and detesting one another." But when the kindness of our God, of God our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy. Through the washing of regeneration, the renewal by the Holy Spirit, He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we may become heirs of hope for, of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person person after the first and second warning. For you know that such person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're grateful for you and all that you've done in us. Lord, we ask you to meet us here. We ask you to speak to us. I thank you for, for working, even giving us this morning, a spark that reminded that you're still saving folks. You have not took a nap. And even in this room, you can stir all of our hearts. Help us follow your son, Jesus, better. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You guys can be seated. So one of the biggest questions in the history of the church is, what is the church's relationship with the world? Or maybe a better way to put that is, how does the Christian engage the culture? And a lot of people in a lot of ways have attempted this, right? A lot of people have tried to do different things. So you have on one spectrum that a church has, has assimilated to the world to win the world. So this model, this movement, this, this side of the spectrum, it progresses as the, as the church progresses. It, it, it values what the, church, what the world values as the world progresses. And what's happened here, the, the, the flaw in this method is that one, they kind of basically abandon biblical faithfulness. They choose what parts of the Bible they want to believe. And the other problem is it hasn't worked. They've changed their values. They've changed their beliefs to accommodate the world. And the world isn't showing up to their churches. And why? Because the church has nothing unique to offer to the, the world. The world isn't showing up to those churches because the world wouldn't show up to a church to get the world's values. So this assimilated church has nothing unique and something beautiful to offer a world when it already values the same things. 
On the other side of the spectrum, you have the church to reach the world in a way that avoids the world. They said that as the world progresses, we're going to recluse and we're going to retract. We're going to keep our rituals and our doctrines safe from the world and uncorrupted from the world. And this hasn't worked because it hasn't offered the world anything. So the, the world sees this church and they only experience the law of God and they never experience the mercy and grace of God. And you may have experienced this flavor of Christianity that keeps their doors um, spiritually shut from the world to protect them from the world. They've avoided the world. They've reclused from the world. And they have nothing to offer from the world. And the world doesn't show up to these churches because if they're honest, they don't feel like they're invited or they're welcomed. And I just want to say that both of these are well-intended. One wants to win the world for Jesus. One really wants people to follow Jesus. And the other one wants to keep their children and their people uncorrupted from the world. But I would argue, and I think Paul argues today, there's a better way. There's a better way to be present in the world. There's a better way to engage the world. There's a better relationship to be had. And I think what Paul is trying to show us today is this. We win the world not by assimilating to the world, nor by avoiding the world, but being a faithful presence in the world. We win the world not by assimilating to the world, nor by avoiding the world, but being a faithful presence in the world. And he's going to show us how to do this in Titus 3. He's going to show us a way to be present in the world. He's going to show us what it looks like and what to avoid. The first thing he shows us is to pursue faithfulness. Look at verse 1. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. I want you, look at verse 8. Jump to verse 8. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. So Paul's reminding Titus to remind his church, don't let off the gas pedal. Teach them how to be good people and as the new citizens of a new heaven. And he lists out really simple things. He basically, to summarize, he says this, submit to the government, be ready to serve, slander no one, avoid fighting, be kind and show gentleness. And there are a couple things that are, kind of stick out to me that are pretty profound. One, that Paul doesn't diminish these people's citizenship in Crete, even though they have a new citizenship in heaven. Paul doesn't diminish these people's citizenship in Crete, even though they have a new citizenship in heaven. He tells them, be in society, be a contributor to society. He tells them to obey the government. And he's not saying obey blindly. He's not saying obey if they tell you to worship Zeus, which uh, Greek mythology was big in the island of Crete. He's telling them to simply obey the laws. If Paul was writing to us, he would say that like this. Hey, drive the speed limit. Don't do drugs that are illegal. Obey your uh, local authorities. Don't do foolish things. Be a good citizen. Sometimes we read the, the Bible as if all these people were formerly Americans or currently Americans, that they had this moral code or this assessment. But the island of Crete was wild. They were wild. They didn't know how to live. They didn't know what to do. And he's telling them, hey, hey, your, one of your first steps is be legal. <laughs> be a good person. The second thing that steps out in this text is when you read them, 
it doesn't seem that radical. Think about the things he lists out. He says, oh, submit to the government, be ready to serve, slander no one, avoid fighting, be kind, show gentleness. And if I'm honest, if I'm honest, I read that and think, that's it? Like, nothing about going on mission trips and nothing about sharing the gospel with your neighbor, nothing about all these. And I'm like, isn't there like an appendix, Paul, to this book? Because there's some varsity stuff you left out that I may need to remind folks. These things seem really simple. But if we're honest as Christians, they're pretty hard. It's pretty hard to be a good person. It's pretty hard to avoid fighting. It's pretty hard to be gentle when people don't deserve it. I don't know what your life has been like over the last couple of years, but I could have used, my soul could have used this type of Christianity. It seems simple, but it's profoundly supernatural. It seems simple, but it's profoundly supernatural. It takes the work of God to be this type of person. What Paul is telling us to do is to be a good person. And if that sounds simple to you, then maybe there's spots in your life you're blind to. It's simple, but we all struggle with it. And Paul is simply saying, be faithfully present in the world. Pursue faithful civility. Pursue goodness. Pursue faithfulness. But he didn't leave it there. He tells us in verse 9 to avoid foolishness. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after the first and second time. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. So evidently what happens in this church is there's quarrels and debates and fighting over foolish stuff, over things that don't really matter, over things that, that people have disputed for a long time. And Paul's saying, stop it. And one of the reasons he's saying is, one, a divided bride is a bad witness. A divided bride is a bad witness. Even in John 17, Jesus prays for his church. He says, please make them one as me and the Father are one. A divided bride shows off a divided God. But a united bride, a united church, shows off a God that is three in one and perfectly united, perfectly one. He's also a pragmatist because he knows if we're busy fighting, we won't be busy showing off Jesus. If we're busy fighting, we will not be busy showing off Jesus because it takes a lot of energy to fight. It takes a lot more energy to fight than it does to have joy. He says, stop. This is not profitable. It's not helpful. It's worthless. Stop doing foolish things. Avoid it. And now we don't, um, we don't have uh, genealogies to fight about. We don't have the fine points of the law to fight about, but we have plenty of fighting we've had. We don't fight over genealogies, but some of you can remember how much we fought, the church has fought, not me, the church has fought over drums being on a stage. We don't fight about the fine points of the law, but we have fought about how many points of Calvinism you believe. We haven't fought over this stuff, but we have stuff we fought about. And what Paul is saying is avoid the foolish fighting. 
Now, is there stuff to fight about? Yes, there's stuff to fight about. But my weariness, my weariness comes from a growing subculture of Christianity that cares more about being right than loving their neighbor. That cares more about getting their point across and listening to somebody. I'm weary of a, a subculture of Christianity that's watching blogs and YouTube channels dedicated to calling somebody out when they say the wrong thing at the wrong time and they didn't even mean what they said. Christianity's became so tribal that if I believe something and you believe somebody different, something different, you're not just different than me, you are my enemy. And what that's, what's happened is it's eroded our trust with each other, it's eroded our witness to the culture. And the world sees us fighting just like they're fighting. And I just want to ask what Paul is asking. Is it helpful? Is it profitable? Is it worth doing it? And what I think Paul has here, because we need to know there is stuff worth fighting for. There is truth to stand on. But I think Paul's working with a, a framework here that could be helpful to us because he says, avoid foolish debates and quarreling. Paul fights for stuff. There's, there's places where t- Paul tells somebody that disagrees with him that, that's teaching a false gospel that they should be cut off. They should be dead. There's stuff to stand on, but what Paul is saying, there's stuff not worth fighting for. And some people have called this theological triage. This is a a way to put our beliefs in categories to know what to fight about and know what to be okay with. So I have a a diagram on the screen that kind of shows what this um, this theological triage is. So Trevor, if you can show that little diagram. What we have here is you have your essentials. Essentials are the things that define orthodoxy. These are the things we hold tight-fisted. These are the things we believe truly and confidently. These are things we're not willing to waver over. So these are things like the Trinity. We believe God is, is three and he's one. The divinity of Jesus. God is fully man and fully of God. This is the things like um, the, the virgin birth. Justification by faith through grace that we know that we don't earn our salvation. It's only by the grace of God through faith. These are things we hold tight-fisted, that we're willing to stand on, that we're willing to say, hey, I don't know if you're a Christian if you don't believe these things. These are essentials. These are determining orthodoxy. Then you have your convictions, and your convictions determine your fellowship. These are the things we hold loose-handed. We think we're right. In fact, if, you, if we had conversations at our church, we, we believe we're right as a church, but we're okay with you not agreeing with us. We're okay with you not seeing it the same way. But it, they do determine fellowship. So for example, we are a Baptist church. What that means is we believe in believer's baptism. So we, we put people underwater and bring them up after they became a believer. And there's friends of ours that go to different churches, Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopalians. They baptize infants. And they can do that. I love them. I just think they're wrong. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they're reading the Bible the way I'm reading the Bible. And that's okay. Listen, I, I love my Presbyterian friends. I love Tim Keller. I own almost every book he's ever read. I listen to his sermons. I read his books. I read his articles. But I wouldn't join his church because we're landing on different places and when we read our Bibles. And that's okay. I can still call him a Christian. He just may be wrong. 
Then we have our preferences. These are the things we hold open-handed. So, so essentials we hold tight-fisted. Convictions we hold loose-handed. We think we're right. We're going to guard these, but we, we're okay with you not agreeing. And then our preferences we hold open-handed. We're not only okay with you disagreeing, we're okay with ourselves being wrong. These are things like our view of the end times. Listen, some of us have convictions about these preferences. And I, if we had coffee, I would try to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong in some level. Because I think I'm reading the Bible the way I'm reading the Bible. But I could be wrong. But if you walk up to somebody and they're talking about the end times, like they heard direct revelation from God and knowing when he's coming back, my encouragement for you in that moment is to run. Like they, if they act like they know without a doubt when the millennial is, then go the other direction. So another preference we would have, another preference in this category is the use of the spiritual gifts. There's some people that think the gifts have ceased. There's some people that think that they continue on. And it's okay that, that the Bible isn't crystal clear on those things. It's okay to be wrong. And it's okay to be in the same church and disagree on these preferences. In fact, I would say on behalf of elders, you can be an elder and disagree on some of these things. Why? Because it's a, we're okay. We're not going to make this is what we're about. This is something we're holding open-handed. And the reason this is important is we need, we need to be weary. We need to be weary of becoming people who make our essentials into preferences. Listen, we can't, we can't make the doctrine of Jesus' divinity optional. The Trinity is not a preference. The virgin birth is not a preference. Saved by grace through faith is not a preference. That's a tight-fisted thing. We, we want to guard those things. Be weary of making our essentials preferences, but also be weary of making our preferences essential. If we make our preferences essential, then I, just to be honest, nothing is essential. If everything's a gospel issue, then nothing's a gospel issue. If everything's worth dividing over, then we actually are standing on nothing. We need to live a life that knows that this view I have, or this opinion that I have, this conviction I have, I could be wrong, and it's okay for somebody disagreeing with me. And if we treat our preferences like essentials, we will make enemies. And I'm weary that's what's happened in the last several years within Christianity. And I also want to be weary of people, and even my own life, that make things that have been debated since the time of Jesus look like they're really clear and really simple. Listen, this book is a hard book to interpret. And sometimes we land in the wrong place. And we want to be nuanced and careful in the way we describe our convictions, even our preferences, in a way that gives grace for somebody who disagrees. Listen, if, if people way smarter than, than Zach and Lyle have debated these things since AD 33, then we shouldn't talk about him in such a way with such confidence. <laughs> it's okay to be wrong, and that's the beauty of it. At the end of the day, though, the crux of the issue is love. The crux of the issue is our ability to love. Because even if we, we disagree with somebody on the essentials, we don't have the right to alienate them and make them our enemy. 
I can remember in college when I started um, following Jesus really in a serious way and reading my Bible and consuming all the theology books and reading all the articles and, and listening to John Piper once a week. And I was just consuming all this information and I was willing to talk about it with anybody and everybody and I was willing to fight about it with anybody and everybody. Some people call this theological puberty. And it's a time where you're consuming so much and you don't have the ability to talk about it. And those people, my conviction, is they need to be locked in a box for a couple years and not talk, to, not talk to anybody about anything regarding theology. But in that season, God gave me a gift. And it was a guy that was a cross-country runner in our college. He was a part of our FCA Bible studies. We were reading the Bible together. We were um, hanging out together. I saw him following Jesus. He saw me following Jesus. I saw him making disciples. And I saw him fighting his sin. I saw him bearing the fruit of the, the Holy Spirit. And then we became roommates. And one of the unique things about Colin is that Colin was a Catholic. He was like a real Catholic, like a Catholic that went to mass, that prayed to Mary. He even went to seminary, but decided he couldn't do the celibacy thing. So he said, I'm just gonna be a normal Catholic. And, and he came back and we roomed together. And we fought at times to one o'clock in the morning about theology. I let him know that how wrong he was about Mary. <laughs> he let me know how disrespectful I was to authority like popes. And we fought and we fought and we argued and we loved each other. You know what didn't change? Either of our opinions. Never, hardly ever did they change. But you know what did? Our love for one another. Because in that life together, he was helping me follow Jesus and I was helping him. He was praying for me and I was praying for him. He was bearing my pain and my sin and I was bearing his. And what God taught me through Colin is that my, my love for somebody is never determined by my agreement with them. My love for somebody is never determined by my agreement with them. My love for somebody is determined by our shared image in the image of God and our inheritance in heaven forever. So I knew, I knew Colin was wrong about some stuff he believed, but you know what else I knew? I was going to see him a thousand years. My love for somebody is never determined, never determined by my agreement with them. If we get that, we'll see people not as our enemies, but as people who simply disagree with us, and we'll see each other forever one day. That's what God and Paul is calling us to, avoiding foolish debates for the sake of love, for the sake of our witness. There are gospel issues, but let's avoid the foolish things the foolish things that distract us and hinder our witness. He's calling us to pursue this faithfulness, to be a witness, to be a good person. And he's calling us to avoid this foolishness that hinders and dims the light of Christ in the world. But if you're honest, if you're hindered with me, it's like, I've tried. <laughs> I've tried not to cuss out the person that cuts me off in the road. <laughs> I've tried not to yell at my kids. I've tried not to be mean to that person that goes to school with me. I've tried to get away from Facebook comments. I've, I've tried to stop watching those YouTube channels. And you don't know what to do with that. Well, Paul helps us. 
He tells us to remember grace. Look at verse three. For we too were were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and detesting one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy and true. We can live the present and helpful life. We can avoid the foolishness of the world by remembering that we were once fools. Then God made us alive. God's kindness and love exploded on the earth in the person of Jesus. When you want to know how much God loves you, look at the person of Jesus who entered our world and became like us. He died in place of us. He rose ahead of us and he ascended for one day. He's coming back for us. You want to know how foolish you were? Look at the measure in which God went to rescue you. It was his kindness, his mercy for you. That means you didn't come to the place you are by making yourself. You didn't pull up your your bootstraps and get your act together. You aren't an A player that Jesus chose. You're disobedient. You're an enemy. But God saved us. He rescued us and redeemed us. Friend, if we think ourselves as self-made, we will only think of others outside of our church and outside of our tribe as unmade and even tempting to think of them as our enemy. If we think of ourselves as self-made, we'll think of others as lower echelon people that haven't gotten where you've gotten. But if we think of ourselves as sinners made new by Jesus, we'll think of others in the same need. They need the same stuff we got, the grace of Jesus. Instead of thinking of ourselves as self-made, let us be a people that think of ourselves as Jesus-made. Jesus-made people give charity to people when we disagree with them because there's an infinite amount of stuff that we've disagreed with Jesus about, yet he gives more grace. Jesus-made people are kind to people who do not earn it in no form or fashion because Jesus gave us grace and mercy when we did nothing to earn it. Jesus-made people are present in a world of chaos, sin, and mess because we know, we know we are safe with Jesus. We do not want to be a people that are self-made. We are a people that are Jesus-made. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, God has made us alive and you did nothing to earn it. And therefore, we can look at others Look at others that disagree with us. Look at others that haven't followed Jesus yet as people loved by God just as much as you are. 
That song we sing, it says that there's no moment that Jesus will love us more than right now, and that includes people we disagree with. They, they are loved by Jesus immensely. And you may be here and you're thinking, Zach, I've tried that. I've been trying to be a good person. I've been trying to get my act together. I've been trying to change how I act to my kids. I've been trying to change how I act in my school. I've been trying to become a better person. I've been trying to avoid fights about stupid stuff. And it isn't working. If that's you, maybe your first step today is to be made new by Jesus. Stop trying to make yourself. Stop trying to perform and stop trying to get your act together. Give your life to Jesus so that he can make you new. It's the only way. It's the only way you'll be able to do this. If you try to do this on your own, you're climbing a mountain you can't climb. Give your life to Jesus. Take your kingship off yourself and put it at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, rule my life. Make me new. And in that moment, the Spirit will make you alive and He'll cleanse you and all the sin you have and He will work in you a new work that you haven't ever experienced in your life. God is the how and the why in which we live the good life. Give your life to Jesus. And if you've given your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you. God has not called us to avoid the world, to fight with the world, to become like the world. He's called us to be faithfully present in the world, just like God was present in the garden, just like God was present in the wilderness, just like God was present in the temple, just like God was present in the incarnation. God is present through his church, so we have the opportunity, we have the invitation to be God's presence on earth, and we do that through living the good life, being kind, being gentle, not being eager to fight, not wanting to quarrel, being a nice person. It sounds so simple, but yet it, I, I would argue it's actually what the world is longing for. Imagine, imagine our church being known for gentleness and kindness to our neighbors, people not willing to fight about silly stuff, a church that's eager to serve in any opportunity. That the community around us, what they know about us the most is they were good people. And I would argue that flip our community upside down. And that's the invitation for us this morning. Your choice is to live into it by his grace, by his mercy. Pursue faithfulness, avoid foolishness, and remember grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the mercy you've given us in Christ, that the only reason we're in this room is because you did a work in our hearts, you did a work in our lives. You brought us to where we are. So Father, give us the courage to be good. Give us the faith to give us enough grace when we mess up and give us the discipline of remembering grace.
Praise in Christ's name. Amen. One of the ways we pursue and remember grace is by taking communion every week. So we take this bread and we take this cup and we have a physical remembrance of what God's did in us. So we don't become a good person. We don't do good works for simply end in themselves. We do it because God has broke his son's body on our behalf. When we see this bread and we take of this bread, we remember all the good that Jesus did for us in our place. When we take of this cup and we drink, we're remembering the blood shed for us and the forgiving of all the mistakes we've ever made. All the times we haven't been kind. All the times we have been eager to fight. Jesus' blood was shed for that. So how we do communion here at this church, um, we t- go around these tables and I encourage you as a family or with friends, multiple people, go around and we take this as a united family, loving one another. And despite our differences and despite our disagreements, we go to a common cup out of love, remembering, remembering of what Jesus did for us. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you not to take this meal, but talk to somebody about taking on Jesus, giving your life to Jesus. I'd love to talk to you about that today. You can go to the Start Here sign outside or I'll, I'll be around in the service afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about it. As the band plays, I encourage you to stand and take this meal together as a family. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.